The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning studying the word of God. We are studying in the life of David. Life of David. And we are looking today at David's final days. He's near the end of his life. And you might say, well, what are we going to do next? Well, I have already started thinking about what's going to come next after life of David. But I will tell you that what we're going to do, I'm going to take a little bit of liberties here with the life of David. And we're going to actually uh, roll over a little bit into Solomon as well. We're going to go ahead and look at uh, after David passes away and Solomon is king and all of that takes place. We're going to go ahead and go into Solomon just a little bit to get a look at the beginning of his the beginning of his reign as king and some of the things that happened there because I think there's some wonderful lessons for us to learn from all of that. And even though technically that's not life of David, uh, I look at it, if, if you look at what we're going to study today, uh, as far as what David's desire was in terms of who would be on the throne after him, it is part of his legacy, is uh, Solomon and the beginning of his reign anyway. So we're going to take a look at that. Before we do any of this, of course, it is imperative that we as believer priests that we make sure we are prepared for studying the Word of God. So we're going to take a moment for silent prayer. gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed, but to humble ourselves also so that we might be teachable. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to gather at the church this morning. Thank you for the blessing of the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the joy that I have in my heart when I look out and I see the faces of the the believers that you've led to this church. We thank you for this opportunity to consider the truth of your word and we ask that you would help us to set aside all the distractions that this life seems to bring our way so that we can focus in on what your word is teaching us today that our hearts would be nourished, that our minds would be filled with thoughts about you, that we'd be able to dwell on your truth in our souls so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Before I jump into the study, I just felt compelled to talk about something. You know, there's all of us have, uh, all of us have, uh, a concept of what it is that the gospel represents. All of us do. And hopefully, at least in this church, all of you have a clear picture of the gospel. But I will say, the I talked about this last hour, the average person on the street doesn't have a good picture of it at all. And in fact, uh, today, I wonder more and more if the average person on the street even believes in heaven. Uh, we have become so... Um, oriented to scientific things and Mother Earth things and all of those sorts of things that uh, individuals today, I don't even know if they're contemplating the idea of heaven, life after death, that sort of thing. But even for those who do have a concept of heaven, uh, their concept, most of them, is the Hollywood concept, which is that, you know, there's the pearly gates and there's St. Peter and there is the the decision made is, is have we lived a life that's worthy? Are we going to be allowed into heaven because we've done you know, things such that we're worthy of being in heaven? And as I mentioned last hour, if that were the case, none of us would be there. 
every single one of us would be sent away. Yes. Well, there is that too. Yes, there is the the common notion that when you die, you turn into an angel. That's they don't even understand that. That's an entirely different set of creatures uh, that are not part of. That's not part of what we are. And so, and you know, that's interesting because that all comes from one passage. Uh, that when you die, you will be like the angels that are not not given in marriage, right? That's what Jesus was actually teaching about marriage at the time and said that, and it had nothing to do, had absolutely nothing to do with us turning into angels when we die. <laughs> but that's the concept, right, that we're going to get our wings and we're going to be angels. Uh, but you're right, there's all kinds of misconceptions. And so, you know, we we need to make sure we have clarity in our own minds regarding the gospel because we all need to make sure we understand that, that if God gave us a million years, a million years to try to do enough good deeds to be worthy of heaven, we would not be there. Triple that. Do it logarithmically. Make it a trillion years. It does not matter how much time God were to give you. You'd never be able to do enough to deserve heaven. You would never be able to do enough to equal God's righteousness. We can't do it. So God did what we couldn't do. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He went to the cross and died for our sins so that through nothing more than faith in him, we can have a relationship with God. We can be born again. We can have all the blessings that come with salvation. We can know that we have eternal life. Now you need to understand that message clearly. You need to be able to convey that message clearly. Also, part of the reason I'm bringing all this up is because you also need to understand, and this is very important, you also need to understand that your deeds that you do now, because remember Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians 2.8 and 9 is a clear message about salvation, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then comes Ephesians 2.10. For we were created for good works. All right, so... As believers, we participate in good works, the good works of the Lord. You need to make sure in your own mind you don't ever begin to think that those good works mean now that you deserve to be in heaven, right? That, that look, I'm doing all these good works for God. I deserve to be in heaven. I'm a good person. I'm doing all these good works. We do those good works as a function of love. We do those good works as a function of service. We do them unto the Lord. Those things, by the way, those good works, we're blessed to be able to participate in those good works. But don't for a minute begin to think that by doing those things, you've somehow qualified yourself so that God did the, so God did the right thing when he saved me because look at me now, right? I mean, see what I'm saying? We can start to get this pride and it'll creep in. Now, any of us are capable of doing that. You can, by the way, you can even, you can even do that with church attendance. You can say, look, I go to church every Sunday, right? I go to church every Sunday. I'm a good Christian, right? And you can get caught up in that too. Don't ever let that sort of pride creep in. Again, any of us could do that. Uh, I look at my deacons and the way they serve, uh, and they could get caught up in that. They could say, well, look, I serve the church. I do all these things for my church, right? Those, these guys are somewhat visible in what they do because they're the deacons of the church, but see, in the back of the room, and these guys, they, I know they're not caught up in this, so I feel comfortable talking. In the back of the room, you don't even hardly ever see them because they hide in the back of the room, Becky and Lindy, 
they they Lindy comes in here and he helps do the recording every Sunday and what's that? Yeah, and he's here and he does that service and actually believe it or not some of you don't even know this. It was his idea to set up the recording desk back there. Back in the day, I used to do all of the recordings up here on this pulpit computer. I did the whole thing. I was up here and I was punching buttons and I was doing all kinds of stuff and making sure all the recordings worked. And Lindy at one point came up and said, well, hey, why don't we set up a recording desk and I can run it and then all of that gets taken off of you and you don't have to do it anymore. And we did that and now he does, that's a service he does to the church. Becky does all sorts of things. I mean, she's involved in all sorts of things for the church. A lot of them you don't ever even see. But, you know, she sets up the caroling that we do around Christmas time. She, she brought over a dish to us when, when, uh, when Terry was recovering and all. But, see, all those things are supposed to be done as a function of love, as a function of the love that you have for the Lord and wanting to serve and wanting to, wanting to obey and wanting to, to, to do things that are pleasing to God, but not to try to win his approval in the sense of, now I'm, I'm worthy of my salvation. Now, see, we are supposed to walk in a manner worthy of our salvation, right? We are supposed to do that. But it's not the language of now I deserve my salvation because none of us deserve our salvation. When the Bible says walk in a manner worthy of your salvation, it means God saved you for a purpose. He had a plan for your life. He had an intent for how you were to live. And if you walk in a manner worthy, then you're living according to what God would have you to do what God intended when he saved you. But don't ever think you deserve your salvation. You are no more deserving of your salvation today than you were the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You are no more deserving of your salvation today than you were at the worst day. If you think of the worst day of your life, the day of your life when you did more evil things than any other day of your life, you're no more deserving today of your salvation than you were that day. That's what we all need to make sure we understand. And the reason it's important is because that message is at the core of the gospel message because no one, and this is so important, no one, no one has gone so deep into the depths that they're beyond being saved. No one. Even the vilest offender who truly believes, right? We sing it in the hymn, even the vilest offender who truly believes, is saved, right? No question about it. So we need to understand the true gospel message because most people, you see, you, we hear it all the time. We know it. We understand it. The average person on the street doesn't understand the gospel. They don't get it. They need to hear the gospel and we need to be ready to speak it. So make sure you have it clear in your thinking. Make sure nobody sees you. And when I was talking about that, that, that message about starting to believe that you somehow deserve to be saved, Make sure that you don't become holier than thou, right? Don't ever become holier than thou. You start thinking that I'm so wonderful and I'm so, I'm so perfect and all those sorts of things. You, the, the arrogance complex is destructive in the Christian life. Don't ever, let it, don't ever let it overtake you. All right, life of David. Life of David, David's final days. In David's dying days, now this is an interesting story, by the way, but hopefully I'm going to shed a little light on it that maybe you... Didn't know about. In David's dying days, he became weak and susceptible to cold. 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, David was old, advanced in age. In other words, if old wasn't enough to make you understand, 
<laughs> he, was, he was advanced in age. And they covered him with clothes. And by the way, those clothes that we're talking about here, these, this was actually like sheets and blankets and that sort of thing. Uh, but that's the language that they, the word can mean clothes as well. But I think, that's, I think it should be translated bed, bed uh, sheets or blankets or something of that language. Uh, that, that's not a good translation. They covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servants said to him, let them seek a young virgin for my Lord, the king, and let her attend the king and become his nurse and let her lie in your bosom that my Lord, uh, the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite and brought her to the king girl was very beautiful and she became the king's nurse and served him. But the king did not cohabit with her. I think you all know what that means uh, without me even explaining it. Um, But first of all, a beautiful woman, Abishag the Shunammite, was found for David's nurse, and I put quotes around it, and warmer. Uh, That's what we saw there. She's supposed to be his warmer. Uh, Josephus actually attested, that's the the Jewish historian who then became Roman. You know, Jewish-Roman historian Josephus attested to this as a common practice. Not only at the time of David, but it was actually, believe it or not, it went on even all into the Middle Ages. It was a common practice. Uh, and so did Galen, a Greek physician and philosopher. In fact, phys- the physicians at the time would prescribe it. Somebody would be old, they would be having trouble that they couldn't keep warm, and they would prescribe to have that happen, have somebody come in and be a warmer. And so they brought in this, 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 this woman. Now, she was a virgin. She was a virgin and... Part of the reason for that was not, it had nothing to do with, uh, with you know, what some people's minds go to because we know for a fact here, David, he, certainly he had a weakness for beautiful women. I think we've, we've seen that, right? Uh, but in this case, no funny business took place. Now, by the way, there's a couple of, there's a couple of um, thoughts on this. Uh, David was old, advanced in age. We just read that. So maybe he wasn't able to act on his urges. That's a possibility. Uh, but the common thread of thinking, and I actually share this, is David had learned his lessons. I think by this point in his time, he'd actually learned and he knew better. And so uh, he, didn't, he, didn't even, uh, he didn't even go there. So no funny business took place. But why did, they, why did they find a virgin? Well, see, they weren't just looking for someone who could come in there and warm, keep him warm. They were looking for someone who could actually attend to him as a nurse, if you will. And her being a virgin means that she's not under obligation or attachment to someone else. And so she can stay there with David and attend to him. Now you're going to notice as we go through this chapter that everything's on the up and up with all of this, because uh, later on when Bathsheba, David's wife comes in, she doesn't somehow freak out when there's someone there warming up her husband. She's not freaking out by the whole thing. She's in fact, she, I, my, my thought is she knew all about it and she didn't, she didn't bother, it didn't bother her at all because it was, again, a common practice, and he wasn't doing anything. No funny business was going on. Now, Adonijah perceived David's weakness and attempted to seize the throne. Now, first of all, uh, before we go there, I want to put this up there. Adonijah was, was the fourth son of David. If we go back to Second Samuel 3, 4. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And Anyway, we, we looked at all the children. Adonijah is the fourth son. And likely the oldest living one at this time. Actually, he's probably the oldest son still alive at the time of David's uh, final days. 
Um, if we go to the section here, verses 5 through 10, now Adonijah, the son of Hagith, exalted himself. Now, what does the scripture say about that? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man. And I'm going to point out why I think that was mentioned. And he was born after Absalom. Uh, So that's just showing where he fit in the line of of the sons. He had conferred, now notice this, he had conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, and following uh, Adonijah, they helped him. So these two, Abiathar the priest and, and Joab the son of Zeruiah, those, these two followed after Adonijah. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And that's just to say they didn't, they didn't follow after him. They, they remained faithful to David. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoheleth, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. So we could talk about that in a minute as well. Verse 10, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. So notice he invited the, the others of the king's sons, but he did not invite Solomon his brother. And that was very purposeful, I think. So first of all, I believe the chariots and the horsemen plus the 50 men running before him, that was an attempt to establish credibility. In other words, as he set himself up and he had the chariots, he had the horsemen, he had the 50 running before him. Then as he went out, and here comes this procession uh, with Adonijah, it looks impressive. It looks legit, right? So the people see this and they think, oh, Adonijah, he's, he's leading these people. He's, the, he's, he's become the king. He's, he's legit. It gives him credibility. Now, he was handsome. I think the reason that handsome was mentioned is because I think that means he was probably pretty popular. You know, he was a good-looking guy, and the people liked him, you know. And the reality of it is, if you go back and look at it, that's not just something of the people. I mean, think, go all the way back. If you look at the very beginning of when we did the study, when Samuel showed up and he saw some of uh, David's brothers Right? He saw some of David's brothers. He went, wow, it must be this one because he was striking and handsome and strong and all those things. And so it's just, it's human nature is what it comes down to. So they saw him. He was a very, very strong, handsome man and was likely very popular. So when he exalted himself, he's got this show of, of uh, leadership and that he's got a following. Very impressive. And probably the people just jumped right in, right? They followed right along because. Uh, he was already popular to begin with. He was David's son, after all. Now, Joab and Abiathar the priest joined Adonijah in this, what I believe is a conspiracy here. That's an interesting note. Joab is quick to, to, to turn over and do these kinds of things, isn't he? Joab has definitely not been a faithful servant to David throughout his life. Uh, Zadok, Benaiah, Nathan, and David's mighty men remained faithful, as I pointed out before. Um, and then... Adonijah tried to involve other, uh, the other sons of David with the notable exception of Solomon. Now, interestingly, when he went over and he did all the sacrificing and he invited the, uh, the people to come, what that's all about is if they come over and they do that and he leads this and he's doing this whole thing with the offering of the sacrifices and all, again, it shows legitimacy. And if the sons come and they participate with him, it's effectively them endorsing him. 
It's, it's almost like they come out. You know, we see it today in politics where somebody comes out and makes a public endorsement. That's effectively what this would have been if the king's sons come over and they participate with him as he's offering up these sacrifices. They're endorsing him to be the next king. That's what it comes down to. Now, I believe the reason he did not invite these individuals, I think Adonijah already knew they weren't going to come along. I think he knew. He, he invited the ones that he thought would, would come along and follow him. And he didn't even waste his time inviting the ones that he knew were going to remain faithful to David. Now, Nathan responded to the conspiracy by urging Bathsheba to approach David and secure the throne for Solomon. As you can see, that's a, a bunch of verses there, 21 verses. So we're going to go through it a little at a time. So Nathan found out about the whole thing. He urged Bathsheba to approach David and secure the throne for Solomon. Nathan, we know, is a prophet. Uh, I believe it's very likely that he was moved by God to take this action. We know that happened before, back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, and remember when he told him this whole story about the two men? And David was very upset at the one, the rich one, and what he had done well, uh, again, Nathan was sent to him to tell him that. And, of course, David didn't realize he was talking about himself, uh, but he did. He did uh, call the man out, and he was convicting himself at the time. But anyway, I believe it's very likely as a prophet he was moved by God to take this action. I don't think this was a selfish play. I think he was moved by God. He was deeply concerned also about what would happen uh, to Bathsheba. Uh, if, and Solomon, if Adonijah took over the throne. Let's take a look at the first couple of verses, 11 and 12. Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? Now, I'll, I'll address that terminology, becoming king, here in just a minute. Has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? So now come... Please let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. See, what he's saying is, if Adonijah becomes king, you guys are going to be toast. You guys are going to, you guys, he's going to kill you. He's going to take you out. Uh, so this is, he's not just talking about saving the throne for Solomon. He's talking about saving their lives. He believes if Adonijah becomes king that, that Bathsheba and Solomon are in danger. The promise uh, made to Bathsheba that we're going to see in verse 13, it's also mentioned in verse 17, is not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, but indeed, we know that Solomon was the promised heir to the throne. If we go to verse 13 now, he says, Go at once to the king and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Again, that language of becoming king. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So, but this, this, this oath, this vow that King David made to Bathsheba, it's not recorded elsewhere. We don't have any verse that we can turn to where this is recorded. But here is, is we know that it was done. Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Again, we know that he was indeed the the promised heir of the throne but the word of the lord came to me in first chronicles 22 verses 8 through 10 but the word of the lord came to me saying you have shed much blood and have waged great wars you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me behold a son will be born to you 
who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So here's that language. So the son Solomon, right? The son, the promised son Solomon that's going to come after, right? So David knew that Solomon was the one who was supposed to be king after him. So that he made this vow and this promise to Bathsheba is not surprising, is it? It's not surprising, but it's not recorded anywhere else. Now, Adonijah had claimed the throne. We saw that in verse 13 and before that, that he became king, but he had never been anointed or crowned. So he's claimed it. And this, so this language of becoming king, it's that he's calling himself the king. He's, he's claiming the throne. That's what it means because he hasn't really become king. He has not been anointed. He's never been crowned. He's not officially the king, but he is calling himself king. He's calling himself king. Nathan made it clear to Bathsheba that he would back up whatever she was saying. And that's important, right? So Bathsheba's going to go and she's going to do this. She's going to talk to David. And then Nathan says, behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your word. So in other words, you're not on your own on this. You know, I'm not asking you to go up there and do this on your own. I'll go with you and I will confirm everything that you're saying. That's to help give her a little bit more confidence and comfort to do that. Interestingly, when she shows up, though she was his wife, Bathsheba showed David the respect he deserved as the king before explaining the situation to him. I found this. This awesome here, actually. First of all, in verse 15, it says, So Bathsheba went into the king in, uh, in the bedroom. Now, the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was ministering to the king. And again, she didn't freak out when she saw that. Uh, I think she was well aware of it. What she did is she went in, it says here in verse 16, Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king. And the king said, What do you wish? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord, your God, saying, surely your son Solomon shall be king after me and he shall sit on my throne. Now, behold, Adonijah is king. And now, my Lord, the king, you do not know it. He has sacrificed, sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance. And he has invited all the sons of the king and Abiathar, the priest and Joab, the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. Now, we know there were others he didn't invite either. But the focus for Bathsheba is the fact that Solomon was not invited. Uh, but he, she knows that he's supposed to be king anyway. But notice how she starts out when she gets in there. She bows down before him. Even though she's his wife, she's bowing down before him as king. She's approaching him as he is King David. She told David that Israel would abide by whatever his choice was for successor and she revealed her concern for her life and Solomon's life in the next couple of verses. So she said, as for you now, my Lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on, sit on the throne of my Lord, the king after him. So look what he says. She's saying the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my Lord, the king after him. So in other words, even though Adonijah has already done this. Right, Even though he's already exalted himself and claims to be the king, she is telling him that Israel, all of Israel is looking to David, looking to David to say who it is that's supposed to be on the throne. So she makes that clear. And then she says, 
as part of that, she says, otherwise it will come about. And notice what she's saying here. As soon as my Lord, the king sleeps with his father. So as soon as David dies, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. And the word for that is actually sinners. And so the point she's making is they will actually come after us. She's saying the same thing Nathan did. They'll actually come after us. So she's appealing to David saying, look, what you say matters. What you say matters. The people will listen to you. And then she's making sure that David understands the seriousness of this, that if Adonijah is king and David passes away, then they're in danger. They're in danger. So she does an effective job of communicating, I believe. And then then Nathan comes in and confirms everything that she had said in the next uh, verses, verses 22 through 27. Behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan, Nathan the prophet came in. They told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Again, see the same sort of humility before the king. Then Nathan said, My lord, the king, you have said, excuse me, have you said, Adonijah shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been done by my Lord, the king, and you have not shown to your to your servants who should sit on the throne of my Lord, the king after him? So he basically has confirmed the same thing. He makes sure he understands what's been happening with Adonijah. And he says, he's actually saying it a little different way, though. Notice what he's saying is, is this what you did? Did you do this? Did you say that Adonijah would be the king? And so he's making sure he understands what's going on here, that this has happened without his awareness and all of that. Now, now one of the things, if I'm to stage the whole thing, Bathsheba comes in, there's David, he's in the bed. And she comes in and she bows down and prostrates before him and she talks to him. And then Nathan shows up and then Nathan goes over and he bows down and he also puts his face to the ground and is talking to David, the king. When he does that, when Nathan then comes in and he goes over to talk to the king, Bathsheba is going to back away, right? Because Nathan is over there talking now and it's minor, but it's like if you're watching a play, you would see that she would get up and back away because Nathan is talking to David now. And so that's why what we find in the next verse <clears throat> is there. David called for Bathsheba and told her he would honor the vow that he had made to her without any delay. See, she had backed away. That's what would have been normal. That had been standard procedure that when Nathan came in and was talking to David, she would have backed away. I believe she was still in the room, but she had backed away. And so King David said, call Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king the king vowed and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, surely as I vowed to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, your son Solomon, excuse me, Solomon shall be king after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place. I will indeed do so this day. So again, now, not only have we heard twice, right? We've, we've heard this language. David confirms that he indeed made this vow. He indeed made this vow. And he says, not only... Now, part of the reason he says, I will indeed do so this day, why do you think that's important? He's on his deathbed. We don't know how much longer the King David's going to be alive. 
And so he's saying without any, without any delay, I'm going to take care of this. So this gets taken care of before I die, right? So that's what he's telling Bathsheba is that he's going to take care of That's why I phrased it that way, without any delay. Once again, Bathsheba showed David proper respect in, in expressing her gratitude. I love the example that she sets here. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. Now, she knows he's not going to live forever. But what she's talking about is that the, God would bless him. Remember that uh, the God could bless people by giving them, giving them more days, right? That's the language of the Old Testament scriptures with regard to many different individuals that they got, they got uh, days. Remember the one king, I, I think it's Hezekiah. We were just reading about the one king, King Hezekiah, actually was going was gonna to die. He had an ailment and was going to die, and the Lord blessed him and gave him more years, right? So, that, so that, um, that's what she's talking about. So when she says, uh, may, may my Lord King David live forever. Now, this example of Bathsheba, there's, mo- there's modern-day equivalents to this. And I'll give you one right here in our own church. Uh, my wife comes to church, and when she sits in that chair... And when I'm up here behind the pulpit and I'm preaching, she is submitting to me as her pastor. So, I, yes, I am her husband, and that is, that's a relationship that we have. But when she comes in in this environment, in this situation, she submits to me as her pastor. Much the same as what we see Bathsheba doing here, submitting to the king as the king of Israel. Uh, that's something that... My wife does when she comes to the church and submits to me as her pastor. So that's, uh, there's application for that today. And, that, and, and, and that's an interesting dyma- dynamic. If you want to know more about it, talk to Terry about it because it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, uh, as, you know, as my wife, she knows all of my foibles and all of my uh, everything, right? She knows all the, all, the, all the dirty details, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, she knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. She certainly does. And uh, so then for her to come in and submit to me as her pastor and do that with, the, with humility, that, that, that's something that, that obviously is, is something that God has to help her do, I believe. I don't think it's, it's by nature that she does that. I think God has to help her to do that. But that's an important thing, right, because I am her pastor as well as her husband. So this example of, of Bathsheba is a, is a powerful one. Now David then set forth his plan to have Solomon become king. The first thing he does is instruct Zadok, Nathan, and Benaiah to carry out his plan. That's in verse 32. Then King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. So he's calling them in there because he wants them to carry out the plan. They were to anoint Solomon, proclaim him, clean, proclaim him king, easy for me to say, and sit him on the throne. Verses 33 through 35. The king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule. Right, that's important. He's going to ride on David's mule, on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Now, ultimately, he's saying, I have appointed him, but who really appointed him? The Lord. Exactly. That's exactly right. God did it. And, uh, but that language is important because he wants everybody to know 
that he is declaring that Solomon will be the one who follows him. So that's the plan. And then Benaiah expressed the sentiment of all three of the men with a resounding amen in the next two verses. And by the way, I think Benaiah, it's significant that Benaiah does this because remember that Benaiah was the head over his, his personal guard. Remember that? Benaiah is the one who is the head over David's personal guard. So when he asks him to carry this out, he's kind of the, he's kind of the military might of the three, right? You've got Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and you've got Benaiah. He's the one with the military might. And so when he, when he says this amen, he's saying it for all of them because he's the one who's going to be able to go and carry these things out uh, with, the, with the, the guard as well, as you'll see. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. Thus may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say, As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the, Lord, the throne excuse me, of my Lord, King David. So they're all on board. They're totally on board. And notice in this one, when he says, Amen, he says, Thus may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say. In other words, this be God's will. May this be God's will. Right. So King David has said to do it and he gives a resounding amen. And he says, well, may this he's basically saying, may this be the will of God. May it be that he says that God says that. And then he goes on to say that may Solomon be blessed as well. All right. So Zadok, Nathan and Benaiah, along with David's personal guard, they carry out the plan just as specified. That's in the next two verses. So Zadok, the priest. Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the, the Cherethites, remember when we talked about them, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, they went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent of an, uh, and anointed Solomon. Now when it says from the tent, I believe they, they, that either they had the tabernacle set up at Gihon at that point, it's possible that the tabernacle was set up at Gihon at that point, or they had some sort of a a tent that they used for worship at Gihon. Either way, the horn of oil was there, right? He took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They, then they blew the trumpet and the people, and all the people said, look at that says, and all the people said, long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. To give you an idea of the magnitude of the celebration that took place. So, it's interesting, you know, Adonijah, he had, he had definitely gathered a following, no question about it. But when King David makes his proclamation and they actually anoint him and he, be, he becomes proclaimed as the king, long live King Solomon, he's been anointed, he's there. The people rejoiced with such a rejoicing that the earth shook. So they were celebrating this. They were very happy uh, because that's, that's what we said. The people, the people rejoiced that Solomon had been made king as David's clear choice. That's what we have uh, in verse 40. I believe that's what it was. See, Adonijah, you know, when he claimed himself to be the king, that was one thing, right? And there were people following after him and there was people who were on board with that whole thing. But when King David made the proclamation, when he was the one who said that Solomon would be king after him and the people knew that Solomon was the right, rightful heir to the throne, they rejoiced. Because they had been blessed under David, and they believed that because he had he had uh, said that Solomon was to follow him, that they would be blessed under Solomon as well. So they rejoiced. Now the news of Solomon's anointing came to Adonijah. You had to know that was coming, right? Came to Adonijah and company. 
uh, in the next verses. We'll look at it a little bit at a time. First of all, Adonijah assumed the uproar of the people was a sign of good news, right? That was what he assumed. It says, now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. Remember, that's what they were doing. They were, they were partying and having a celebration there. They were eating. Uh, when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, why is the city making such an uproar? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of, Be- the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. Then Adonijah said, come in, for you're a valiant man, and bring good news. Right? So something great was happening. And Adonijah's like, well, okay, come on in. I know you got good news for me. Yes, ma'am. I believe it's the latter. Great question. I believe Adonijah knew that Solomon was the, uh, was the heir to the throne. And you're right. He's the oldest, right? He's the oldest alive, I believe, at that point. And uh, he thinks he deserves the throne. So he was doing this to basically usurp uh, the authority from Solomon. He wanted to get the throne before Solomon did, right? So I think it was an act of evil. And remember, this is a continuation of all the promised that would come of all the stuff that would happen in David's household and his family that all this he would constantly have turbulence going on in his own household and I I, you know I can't prove that from scripture but that's my reckoning of it is that Adonijah knew and so when he saw that David was weak and he believed that David was going to die he tried to grab the throne before he could give it to Solomon as his successor I do I think it was an evil thing great question though um Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, then relayed the news of Solomon's anointing uh, to Adonijah. This couldn't have come across. I'd like to have been in the room there, fly on the wall. Uh, But Jonathan replied to Adonijah, no. And I like the fact that they put the exclamation point on that. No, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. King has also sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon, and they have come up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise which you have heard. Besides, verse 46, besides, and this is significant, Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom. So for all his attempt to seize the throne, for all of his attempt to actually try to uh, take over and claim the throne for himself, all of that's been thwarted at this point, right? All of that has been thwarted because at this point, Solomon has been anointed. Solomon has been seated on the throne. Solomon has been declared the next king of Israel. Uh, He also made it clear that David was thrilled with Solomon's anointing. I think that's another factor in all of this. When you see how they react to it, look at verses 47 and 48. Moreover, this is Jonathan going on to say, moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, may your God make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. So you can see as weak as David was, he went to the effort of actually bowing there and in at that moment of hearing the news the king has also said thus blessed be the lord the god of israel who has granted one to sit on my throne today 
while my own eyes see it, right? In other words, I get to see my own son on the throne before I die. And he counts that a blessing, right? He counts that a blessing. He's thrilled that his son Solomon is sitting on the throne and has taken over the throne after him. And that is that news. So first of all, the idea that this anointing had taken place, he'd been riding on David's mule, he'd been placed on the throne. That's that's enough, right? That's strong enough. But then when the news follows that David is very happy about all of this, that David is thrilled that Solomon is on the throne before he dies, that can't be good for Adonijah, right? That cannot be good for Adonijah. So Adonijah and those who follow him reacted with great fear. You can imagine. Because what were they doing? I mean, as Janice pointed out, what were they doing? They were actually doing an act of evil. They were trying to, to, to steal the throne, basically. So now when they found out that Solomon had actually been put on the throne, they were, as it says here, then all the guests of Adonijah, Adonijah were terrified. And they arose and each went on his way. The party was over. You know, we needed Don Mara to sing and turn out the lights because they're all going home. Verse 50, and Adonijah was afraid of Solomon and he arose, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? Took hold of the horns of the altar. Grasping the horns of the altar is symbolic of asking for mercy. See how we, in verse 51, uh, let's read this. Now it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for behold, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And that's something that was, again, a a symbolic uh, act symbolizing a plea for mercy. In in Exodus 21, verses 13 and 14, But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. This is the the cities, right, where they can flee. Uh, And then in verse 14, If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. In other words, even then, the idea is they would go in and they would grab the horns of the altar and they would plea for mercy. Uh, but this says if someone has done this, if somebody has done a craft, this is murder, basically. If somebody has craftily killed someone else, you're to take them from the altar and they are and they will die, right? That they would die. So there is no city of refuge, right, for the person who's done it that way, right? And uh, so they need to be taken for the altar. So that was a very, it was a symbolic thing to do. And that's what uh, Adonijah is doing. He's grasping the horns of the altar. And as you saw in verse 51, he's pleading for mercy. He's saying, let let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So he's pleading for mercy, pleading for mercy. Uh, Solomon showed mercy toward Adonijah as he found him to be indeed a worthy man. Interestingly, so that shows some grace, doesn't it? Some mercy and some grace and some forgiveness uh, here on, on the part of Solomon. Verses 52 and 53, notice Solomon said, If he is a worthy man, not one of his hairs will fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So King, King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar and he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon and Solomon said to him, go to your house. Now, see, I think this is, this is important. He came and prostrated himself before King Solomon. I think the act that he did of trying to seize the throne was indeed an evil thing. He should not have done that. But now 
He's coming before Solomon and begging for mercy and begging for forgiveness. And I believe at this point, uh, Solomon sees good in him and Solomon says to him, go to your house. He's not going to take his life, right? He's not going not to take his life that day. So he at least saw some good in him. He found him to be a worthy man. So he did not take his life that day. And that shows you something about Solomon's character. And again, as we're going to see when we go beyond the life of David into the beginning of Solomon's reign, we're not going to go all the way through, but we're going to get into the beginning of Solomon's reign. You'll see that Solomon had quite a few things in his character that were things we can learn from. All right, let's go ahead and get to our scripture of the week. Jeremiah 32:33. Jeremiah 32:33. All right. If everybody will please read along with me. They have turned their back to me and not their face, though I taught them, teaching again and again. They would not listen and receive instruction. Now, this is God talking, right? I mean, you can see by the capitalization of the, the me there, this is God talking. It goes on in verse 34 to say they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. I mean, they actually were taking even the house, the, the house that was supposed to be for worship, and they were turning it into a worship for, worship for the Baals and all sorts of things. It was horrible what they were doing. Um, so, but look what it says in verse 33. They have turned their back to me and not their face. Well, we're not talking about that they physically turned around. I mean, that's, that's talking about what they had done in terms of turning their backs on God in, in terms of how they were acting. They had basically stopped following God, right? They were, not, they were not looking God in the face and paying attention to what he had to say and seeking after his will and doing the things that God was telling them to do. They had turned their backs. They were no longer following God. They had rejected God. They were rebelling against God, uh, kind of like our nation today, right? They turned their backs on God. And they, they turned their back to me and not their face. And then it says, though I taught them. And it goes on, Jeremiah goes on to say here, not just that God taught them, right? He's, he's speaking for God here. Uh, though I taught them teaching again and again, right? So the message that's being conveyed from God here is not only that he taught them, he taught them again and again and again. <laughs> you could probably, I mean, if you really wanted to do it, you could go on and say, and again and again and again and again and again, right? Because how many times, if you've been reading along in the, in the, through the Bible reading that we're doing, or even just if you remember reading through uh, Jeremiah, how many times, how many times does God say, I tried to reach them. I sent my people. I tried to reach them. I sent my prophets. I tried to tell them. I sent them messengers and they would not listen. And in fact, if you want an interesting, I did, I did it. So just, just, I thought this was interesting. Let me see. I'll bring up my Bible software here. And we'll do a, uh, let's see, I don't want to do that. Nope, sorry. I want to do a search. Search. All right. Let's 
I just thought this was interesting. Look at this. <laughs> Down here at the bottom. Let me see if I can make this bigger here somehow. Let me close that one. Oh, my goodness. Look at how many times in the Old Testament. And who, who's being talked about every one of these times? <laughs> The people of Israel. How many times that exact phrase is in Old Testament scriptures? They did not listen, right? They did not listen over and over and over again. Well, I, I got to tell you, as a as a pastor today, this is this is one of those things that is my greatest concern. If I have a concern, I come. I'm not, I'm not God, obviously. You know that. Uh, I am someone who's been called by God and he has called me to preach the word and I study the word and I preach the word. And as far as this little flock of believers at this church is concerned, I teach you and I teach you again and again, again and again, again and again. And I'll teach you the same thing again. If I need to, I'll repeat myself. I teach you again and again and again. And why do I do that? Why do I do that? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of love. Because I love the Lord, and so I want to do His will. And because I love all of you. And I want you to be blessed by the truth of God's Word, because I know what a blessing it is. And I teach you again and again. But this last part of this verse, the Scripture of the Week, I can't do anything about this. They would not listen and receive instruction. And those are two things. They're mentioned separately on purpose. First of all, listening is not the same thing as hearing. Right? As I stand up here, as far as I know, everybody in this, everybody in this sanctuary and everybody who's tuned in listening to this lesson online, you have ears that work. There is a membrane there, there are bones, there's nerves, all of that works. And I have a voice that works, as you're well aware, and I can speak these things and the sound waves go out and they reach your ears and the membranes vibrated and the bones wiggle and the nerves act and the sound of my voice goes to your brain. But that doesn't mean you're listening, right? All of that can happen, but that doesn't mean you're listening. To listen means to pay attention, right? To listen means to pay attention because hearing and listening are not the same thing. You can hear what I'm saying, but not listen. And my prayer always is that you'll listen because I'm giving you the things of God's word. Not because I'm special, not because of any of that, not because somehow I have a message that's, that's you know, personal message that's, that's brilliant and you need to hear it. No, I'm, I'm proclaiming the things of God's word and that is worth listening to. And so I want you to listen. I pray that you'll listen. But I also pray that you'll receive instruction. Now, what do you think that means, to receive instruction? It means that when you hear those things that are going to teach you something, you receive it. Because when that, when you leave, you can be listening. You can be listening to what I'm telling you. You can be listening to the Word of God as I'm reading it to you. You can be listening to the Word as I'm teaching you principles about the passage that we're studying. You can listen to all of that. And when that message hits that is ready to teach you something, you can reject it. 
Because you don't want to hear it. Because as Jesse likes to say, instead of preaching, I'm meddling. Right? All of a sudden, I'm meddling in your life. Well, actually, it's not me. It's the Word of God that's doing it. And the reality of it is, those moments when you have an opportunity to learn something, those moments when the Word of God is ready to give you instruction, you have to receive it. That is actually a second part of the process. You have to listen to what the Word is teaching, and then you have to receive it. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be critical. For example... What about the first time you ever heard the message that was preached that showed you that the judgments, for example, the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment, the sheep and goats judgments, the wilderness judgments, all these judgments are going to be evaluations of your deeds. In Revelation, it's very clear. There's the book of life and then there's the books, the books of deeds. And the books of deeds are going to be opened and their deeds are going to be evaluated. When was the first time you heard that? That you actually were listening and you heard the message about how God's going to evaluate our deeds when we, go to, when we go to judgment. Did you receive that instruction? Do you, do you understand it to the point where you now know it? Has it become knowledge? Has it become full knowledge? We need to receive it. You see what I'm saying? That's another part of the process. And my prayer is always that you'll listen and you'll receive the message. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly right, because at, at the point where it's received and it becomes part of your soul, you will become effectual doers, not merely hearers of the word who delude themselves. I want you to be living the word of God. I want you to be showing Christ to the people all around you. And so this message in this verse really struck a chord with me because this is my prayer for the congregation, is that you will not fail this. Right, that being taught again and again, that you will listen and that you will receive the instruction because I will tell you my own faith conviction and it's deep is that there's nothing transformational like the Word of God. It will change you completely. Now, I'm not talking about obliterating your personality. I'm not talking about that somehow... You disappear uh, into, into, the, into the fade off. And now, I mean, if you look around the room. Look at the personalities we have in this room. God's not going to erase those personalities. He loves you and loves the personality that you have. But the Word of God is transformational. It is going to work away in your soul. It's going to reveal the things that are wrong and show you the things that are right and transform you into someone who can image Christ. Can you imagine that for a second? Think about that for a second. I, if I, if I, believe me when I tell you, I'm the kind of person I remember all of my mistakes. That's the kind of personality I have. I can, I can, if you want me to, I can go back and name my mistakes for years. For years. Uh, I can tell you about a bad golf shot I hit 10 years ago. I can tell you about a stupid thing I did to my wife. I can tell you about, I can tell you about all of that. That's the stuff that I remember. And knowing all of those things, it blows my mind that because of God and because of the Holy Spirit who lives in me, I can actually image Christ to this lost and dying world. As flawed as I am, as many mistakes as I make, I can still image Christ to this lost and dying world. But it won't happen. It will not happen unless you listen and and receive instruction because that is how we're being conformed into the image of Christ. 
That's how it happens. And so the failure that they made, I don't want to see any of you do it. I don't want to, certainly I don't want you to turn your back. I don't want you to turn your back. But I also don't want you to get to the point where I don't care, I don't care how mature you are as a believer. I don't want you to get to the point where you think you know everything you need to know. None of us do. <laughs> None of us do. We all have things to learn. That's why we're still here, right? We all have things to do. God has things for us to do. That's why we're still here. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the lessons we've been learning as our, we've done this study in the life of David. We look forward to the lessons upcoming, not only in the, the, the completion of David's life, but the beginning of Solomon's reign, the things that we'll learn from that. Father, I ask for your guidance for me as to what we're going to study next uh, here at the main service. And Father, I uh, I do appreciate the prayers of the of the believers in this congregation as they lift that matter up before you as well to help help me to have an understanding of what comes next. Father, we thank you for the things we learn from the scripture of the week and we do ask that you would help us to be sponges for your word that we would indeed listen as we hear your word and we would indeed receive instruction. Father, we can push it away, we can reject it, we can become stubborn and hard-headed, but please, Father, help us to be humble. Help us to be teachable. Help us to grow and be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right.